Now, the, our London Confession uh, presents the, what is commonly called the doctrine of God in chapters 2 and 3. And the second chapter that we're looking at this morning focuses on God himself, his supreme being. And in chapter 3, our confession expounds God's eternal decree. And in systematic theology, when you teach the doctrine of God, you talk about God and his decree together in one basic course. So today, we focus on chapter 2, God's supreme being. And then, God willing, next week, we'll focus on chapter 3, God's eternal decree. Now, this chapter this morning, the second chapter of the confession, is entitled, Of God and of the Holy Trinity. It has three paragraphs. And in these paragraphs, our Baptist fathers define the attributes of God in paragraph 1, then, in paragraph 2, they define the relationship of God to his creation. And in paragraph 3, they define his God's triune personality, the doctrine of the Trinity. So in these three paragraphs, you have the attributes of God, then the relationship of God as creator to his creation, and then God's triune personality, the doctrine of the Trinity. Now that's basically how I outline this chapter of our confession. Well, first of all then, we have paragraph one, the attributes of God. The Lord our God is but only one living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, our confession does not formally classify God's attributes. But our Baptist fathers set forth eight general attributes of God, which in the edition that we have are separated by semicolons. I don't know enough 
about the original drafting of this to know whether those semicolons were in the original or whether they were added, but in whatever edition we've got has the semicolons in it that separate out these general ideas. First of all, they address, and I'm going to go over them, they address the singularity of God, then the aseity or independence of God, the incomprehensibility of God, the spirituality of God, the infinity of God, the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, and the justice of God. Now what I find fascinating, and I told you this before, is the way that our Baptist fathers put this confession together. So where did they come up with a statement like this? Well, I thought about doing this as a handout, but since this isn't a seminary class, although in honor of the way I'm approaching this, I'm wearing my seminary shirt again. I thought about giving you this as a handout, but I want you to look, if you don't mind. You have your uh, confession open in the hymnal. I want you to look at this. Now, I'm going to read the Westminster Confession. And then I'm going to read the first London Confession, which was written in the... These, both of these confessions were written in the 1640s. The first London Confession, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, was produced by seven Baptist congregations in London in 1644 to 46, at the same time that the Westminster Confession was producing the Westminster, uh, the Westminster Assembly was producing the Westminster Standards on the Westminster Confession. So this is what the Westminster Confession says in this paragraph. There is but only one, or one only, living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable, most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who by no means clear the guilty. So you see, they got a lot of that by copying verbatim the Westminster Confession. You follow that? But now listen to this. This is what the Baptists of the earlier generation wrote. This, what I'm going to read now, comes from the first Baptist London Confession of 1646. And this says, in the first, again, the structure of the first London is so radically different. It has completely different structure. And our Baptist fathers in 1689 followed the structure of Westminster and Savoy. The first London has 52 statements. And this is the first of the 52 statements. The Lord our God is but one God whose subsistence is in himself, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, who only has immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. 
So you see what they did? They copied that from the first London Confession. And they blended the two together. They blended what the Baptists said in the 1640s with what the Presbyterians said in the 1640s. They took both of them, copied them, and put them together in one statement. You find that interesting? Well, see, if you were a seminary class, you would absolutely find it interesting. But anyway, I find it fascinating to see what they did. So they, that's what they did. They pasted those two things together. Um, who is in himself most holy, every way infinite, in greatness, wisdom, power, love, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, who gives being, moving, and preservation to all creatures. And so, that last statement, who gives being, moving, and preservation to all creatures, they, they put that in with the second paragraph. But the point is, they took these two sources and combined them in one confessional statement. Our Baptist fathers were expressing their unity both in, in this method, they expressed their unity with the Presbyterians and Congregationalists of 1658, John Owen and the Independents, and also with the earlier generation of Baptists. And they took what the Baptists said and what John Owen and the Presbyterians said, and they combined them into one statement of a confession. Now sometimes when you do something like that, it's a little bit disjointed. But this seems to have fit together quite well. First of all, using this method, they define, oh, that, there's another thing, one other thing. They have 16 reference points of scriptural support. Now, if I were to try to go through all that, we'd be here all morning doing nothing other than proving everything in the confession. We wouldn't get past the first paragraph. But there are, are, there wasn't room, I guess, is the reason. I, I regret how limited we were in space. I'm talking about print space, a number of pages. When we redid the Trinity Hymnal in the 1990s, when we did that, we were extremely limited on space. And because we were so limited on space, we didn't have the room in the publication to put the scripture references and support in there. And I, I regret that because uh, our confession is not inspired. And, they, and our, our Baptist fathers and the Presbyterians before them had the same method. They paused in this paragraph 16 times in order to support everything they said from scripture. And when they published that, they had 16 different points of reference to Scripture to support their doctrine. I do have a copy of the Confession with those 16 points of reference. And again, if this were a seminary class, we'd be going through all 16 of them, you understand? And explaining, trying to explain why they thought this text was relevant to prove that point. That's, a, that's another very interesting study in and of itself. 
But it's uh, a different day, different race, different study, too detailed. But there's only one God. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, and 6 is the passage that they use to support the singularity of God. The Lord our God is one only living and true God. There are not many gods. There is only one supreme being. And he is the Lord, our God. Then they say, whose subsistence is in and of himself. To support this, they appeal to the book of Jeremiah. And again, I, I, I just, in other words, he does not depend for his existence on us or on creation. He doesn't need us in order to live. His personal conscious life or subsistence does not depend on anyone or anything outside of himself. He is self-subsisting, self-sustaining. He is infinite in being and perfection. So, the, the, I, I just want to say, the word aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, is the word that's been used throughout church history to describe God's self-existence. That he depends for his life on nothing and no one outside of himself. When only God was in eternity, that attribute of God is referred to as a saity. In relation to creation, after he creates space and time and everything that exists, then that attribute of God is referred to as his independence. So in relation to the created order and world and everything he made, he is completely independent. And in eternity, when only God is, he's self-existent. So that's what they're affirming. They're affirming God's independence or aseity, both in eternity and upon creation of the world. The next thing that they affirm is his incomprehensibility whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. His incomprehensibility. You can understand God truly, but you can never understand God completely. You can only understand God as God reveals himself to us. That's the point of his incomprehensibility. He is, they say, a most pure spirit. Now it's interesting. Let's see. You see which one it is. I don't remember off the top of my head. A most pure, pure spirit. The Westminster Confession uses a small s spirit. The Savoy Declaration uses a capital S spirit. Both are correct. 
When it says that when our confession uses a small s, what it's affirming is that he is a spiritual being. When the Savoy uses a capital S, it features that he is a unique spiritual being, and there is no other spiritual being that is the supreme spiritual being. So he is a spiritual being, and he is the supreme, one and only supreme spiritual being. He is a most pure spirit. And then the confession opens up his spirituality. It defines the features or characteristics of the spirituality of God. He is a most pure spirit, invisible. He is a most pure spirit without body, parts, or passions. He is a most pure spirit who only has immortality. He is a most pure spirit dwelling in light which no man can approach unto. He is a most, most pure spirit, the spirituality of God. They, they appeal to 1 Timothy. And they uh, appeal to uh, the passage in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy that says you saw no form. He is a most pure spirit in the fact that he does not have a material body. He does not have parts. He does not have passions. Passions refer to either carnal feelings or bodily sufferings or bodily appetites. It should not be interpreted to mean that God does not feel or that he doesn't have affections, that he doesn't feel love, that he doesn't feel hate, that he doesn't feel joy. That he doesn't feel being grieved. That he doesn't feel anger. That he doesn't feel good pleasure. That's not what this is saying. Saying that he's a spiritual being. And that he doesn't have the bodily aspects of human feeling. Human emotion has both bodily and soulish aspects. Somatic and psychic that which is related to the body and that which is related to the soul. A human emotion involves both your body and your soul. The point is God doesn't have a body. So he doesn't have the bodily aspect of feeling. So he doesn't feel human emotion because human emotion involves both body and soul. But he does have genuine feeling, divine affection. He truly feels love and hate and anger and pleasure and joy and grief. But he doesn't have a body because he's a spiritual being. He that made the heart, will he not feel? So, so when it says without body parts and passions, it means that he doesn't have passions and parts and a body. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a heart and that he doesn't feel. It doesn't mean that. And even if it did mean that, it would be wrong. But I don't think that's what it means. Although there are some of our brothers today that argue that that's exactly what it means and we're right next to heretics for saying that God has a heart and that God feels. But anyway. It's a, he's a spiritual being. And he doesn't have a body or the bodily aspects of human emotion or human sufferings or human appetites or sinful emotions, none of those things. 
because he's a spiritual being. And it says that he dwells in light unapproachable. He is invisible, and yet he dwells in light unapproachable. When he creates the world, he robes or clothes his special presence with light so bright that it would be lethal for a mortal to behold him. When he created his own special presence, robed in blinding light, lethal light that no man can approach unto. So that's all part of the spirituality of God. Next, the infinity of God, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. And they have a, 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 a good number of texts to support the infinity of God. The infinity of God in relation to space, what's called his immensity and omnipresence, that he fills all space and he's present with his whole being at every point in space. The infinity of God with reference to time, that he is eternal and ever-present with his whole being at every moment of time and specially present at some moments of time and some points of space. That he is incomprehensible, that he is almighty, that he is able to do whatever he wants or wills to do simply by willing it, so that nothing is too hard for him and nothing can restrain him. And again, they have passages to support every aspect of his infinity. That he's not limited by space and time, that creatures cannot limit what he can do, he can do whatever he wants to do simply by willing it or speaking it and it happens let all the world stand in awe of him because he spoke and it was done he commanded and it stood fast he said let light be and light was he spoke into being everything that is it's amazing isn't it the sovereignty of God who works all things after the counsel of his own immutable, most righteous will for his own glory. Again, they appeal to the word of God in Ephesians chapter 1, other passages that indicate that God not only brought the world into being by his almighty power, but that God runs the world and preserves the world according to his own immutable purpose and sovereign will. The will of God is what is. And here's a mystery. The will of God is what's right. And yet sometimes what is, is not right. The goodness of God, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth or faithfulness, Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Basically, they go through that list where God says to Moses in Exodus 34, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And he proclaims Jehovah, Jehovah, merciful, gracious. And he goes through all these aspects of his goodness. 
The goodness of God involves his love, his loving kindness, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his long-suffering, forbearing, all these various aspects of the goodness of God. His beneficiality by which he blesses and shows goodwill to his creation. And then, finally, the justice of God. But then in that very same passage it says, who will by no way, uh, no means clear the guilty. The justice of God, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. Again, the scripture abundantly testifies that God is just and righteous in all his ways. He is no respecter of persons. He's not prejudiced. He has integrity and conscientiousness, which is why he sent Christ to be the propitiation for sin. Because having freely decided to save sinners that deserve to go to hell, he must be just. And he sent Christ to make propitiation, to pacify his wrath, to satisfy justice, in order that he might be just and at the same time the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God takes justice very seriously. He was willing to pay a great price to maintain his integrity and justice in the salvation and forgiveness of sinners. As I think it was, I, I, I think it was Donald McLeod, but I don't want to quote him. I'll just say, as one theologian said, the opposite of justice is not mercy. The opposite of justice is injustice. Because God's mercy is just and righteous mercy. And the evidence of that is the cross. So, that's what the confession says. As best I could break it down about the attributes of God. It's where it comes from. It's a rather cursory presentation of the biblical support for it. Let's look at the next paragraph. Paragraph 2. This next paragraph defines the relationship of God to his creation. And the two words that have been used to describe this relationship by the theologians are the transcendence of God and the immanence of God. And first of all, his independence or transcendence. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. That he has life in himself. That he does not depend upon his creatures for anything. So it's speaking about his independence or transcendence. But then they go on to describe his imminence. 
his imminence. First of all, he is the source and sovereign giver of life, breath, and everything to his creatures. He alone is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he is most sovereign. He has most sovereign dominion over all his creatures. He has complete and thorough knowledge of his creatures. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. And then he is also without wrong or malice in all of his expectations and treatment of his creatures. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator and whatever he's further pleased to require of them. So basically, it's talking about his eminence and his independence, or his transcendence. That he does not depend on creation, that he is separate from creation and far above creation, and yet that he, he gives life to creation, he sustains creation, he rules creation, he knows creation, and he is righteous and just and holy in all his dealings with creation. We're not far from him. In him we live and move and have our being. Which they support by numerous passages, including Romans 11, 34 to 36, etc. Now, that brings me to paragraph 3, which is the triune personality of God. Now I'm going to start now. I want you to look at our confession. I'm going to start with the Westminster Confession. And I'm going to go to the first London Confession. Then we're going to read our confession. I want you to see again how our confession put together what the Westminster Assembly did. And John Owen copied the Westminster Assembly in this matter. And what the first London Assembly did in the 1640s. Right, this is the Westminster Confession. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. I'll just, well, all right, I'll, I'll read the whole thing. But The Father is of none 
neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, let me read the first London Confession. And this is from the second paragraph or statement of the 52 Roman numerals. This is Roman numeral 2. The last one I read was Roman numeral 1. It's Roman numeral 2. In this divine and infinite being, there is the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. All infinite, without any beginning. Therefore, but one God who is not divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties. End quote. Peculiar there doesn't mean odd or weird. It means particular or individual. See the difference between those two things? Now let me read what our confession said. In this divine and infinite being. Where'd that come from? First London Confession. There are three subsistences, not persons. They change persons to subsistence. The Father, the Word, where'd that come from? First London. Or Son, where'd that come from? Westminster. And Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity. It came from Westminster. Each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. That came from First London. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. All infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar by which doctrine of Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence. They combined Westminster and First London again. See what they did? Now the one thing that's not clear to me is why exactly they changed the word person in Westminster to subsistence. I'm not a historical scholar of what was going on in London in 1677. One thing is clear. The first London Confession didn't use any word to describe the distinction. The Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration use the word person, as does the Dutch Confession. Our confession uses the word subsistence. Now, I, I'm not saying that I don't know where the word subsistence comes from or what it means. I do know where it comes from, and I know what it means. But what I'm not sure about is why they decided to use that rather than persons. Now, I want to explain to you where this comes from. A subsistence is a, a, a living personal consciousness. A living personal consciousness. And 
the three persons or subsistences of the Trinity are living personal consciousness. Each of them is. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The English word, subsistence, comes from the Latin subsistantia, which is a translation of the Greek hypostasis. The English word person is a letter-for-letter -letter equivalent of the Latin persona, which is a translation of the Greek prosopon. The scripture, written in Greek, uses both hypostasis and prosopon. Persona, hypostasis, subsistantia in Latin, prosopon, persona in Latin. The, 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 the Bible uses both of those words to describe the distinctness of the persons or subsistences of the Trinity. Confused yet? So, and the early church creeds use both. They use both hypostasis and prosopon to describe that distinctness of the three. The threeness uses both of those words. So why they decided to use the one based on hypostasis and not the one based on prosopon, I, do, I don't know. But it's not that they've departed from orthodoxy. Both of those are legitimate aspects of the biblical revelation of the threeness of the Trinity. There are three persons or subsistences. Person and subsistence are not English words. They're letter-for-letter -letter equivalents of Latin words, which are translation of the inspired Greek words that describe the threeness of the Trinity. Am I making it clear to you? Trying my best. Now, why they went for one and not the other, that I can't explain. But they didn't depart from orthodoxy or from the historical confession of the Trinity by doing that. There are three persons or subsistences. You understand why they said word or son, because the, the, the second person is described by the First London Confession as God the Word and by the Westminster Confession as God the Son. So that person is both God the Word and God the Son. And so they put both there in order to express their unity both with the Baptists and the Presbyterians and Congregationals. The Father, the Son, or the Word, and the Holy Spirit. They're one in substance, power, and eternity. They're all eternal subsistences or persons. They always were. There always was the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There never was without the Father, without the Son, without the Holy Spirit. And yet, not three distinct beings, but one only being. One divine nature. One divine will, and that will is the will of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One divine mind, and that mind is the mind of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Who can explain it? Can't explain it. God's personality, indeed, is incomprehensible. Three persons, one being. Three subsistences, one being. One nature. All three eternal. And yet they describe how these three persons or subsistences 
living personal consciousness subsistence person concept of self-awareness and relating to other self-awarenesses I, he, you, personal relations, personal communication. Even though there are three distinct living consciousnesses, personal consciousnesses, they have what is called peculiar, not odd, but unique. Distinguishing personal traits. The father, the way I describe this is the father is the pattern and the son is his representation, the exact image of the father. There never was the pattern without its representation, his representation, or the representation without the pattern. The pattern and the representation always were. And that's the idea of eternal begetting. There always was the pattern, there always was its exact representation. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's like what I, I refer to that as the breath. As a man's breath exhales, goes out of his mouth, so the Holy Spirit is the living exhalation of the Father and of the Son. The Father and Son, they don't have a body, but the Holy Spirit proceeds from them like a breath proceeds out of the mouth. Now the breath that comes out of the mouth of a man is only hot air, but the breath that comes out of the mouth of God is a living personal supreme being, is the living personal supreme being, a distinct divine person and subsistence. So he created man to be a picture of himself. What goes, what goes, what goes out, of, out of your mouth? Your words. Your breath. Breathe on me, breath of God. The, the Holy Spirit has made me, uh, the breath of the Almighty has given me life. But the, when it's talking about him being proceeding from, it's talking about him being the breath of God. Now, as I say, our breath is only hot air. But his breath gives a little more than warmth on your hand. It gives life and power executes his will and is not a force but is a person a living personal subsistence that, that text that I said the spirit of God has made me in the breath of the almighty give me life that's Job 33 verse 4 well that's what I wanted to cover this morning the attributes of God the relationship of God the Creator to His creation and the remarkable personality of God, the Doctrine of the Trinity.